Chapter 1 of Syria, The Desert and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Syria, The Desert and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 1. To those bred under an elaborate social order, few such moments of exhilaration can come as that which stands at the threshold of wild travel. The gates of the enclosed garden are thrown open, the chain at the entrance of the sanctuary is lowered. With a wary glance to right and left, you step forth, and behold, the immeasurable world. The world of adventure and of enterprise, dark with hurrying storms, glittering in raw sunlight, an unanswered question and an unanswerable doubt hidden in the fold of every hill. Into it you must go alone, separated from the troops of friends that walk the rose alleys, stripped of the purple and fine linen that impede the fighting arm, roofless, defenseless, without possessions. The voice of the wind shall be heard instead of the persuasive voices of counselors. The touch of the rain and the prick of the frost shall be spurs sharper than praise or blame, and necessity shall speak with an authority unknown to that borrowed wisdom which men obey or discard at will. So you leave the sheltered clothes, and like the man in the fairy story, you feel the bands break that were riveted about your heart as you enter the path that stretches around the rounded shoulder of the earth. It was a stormy morning, the 5th of February. The west wind swept up from the Mediterranean, hurried across the plain where the Canaanites waged war with the stubborn hill-dwellers of Judea, and leapt the barrier of the mountains, to which the kings of Assyria and of Egypt had laid vain siege. It shouted the news of rain to Jerusalem, and raced onwards down the barren eastern slopes, cleared the deep bed of Jordan with a bound, and vanished across the hills of Moab into the desert. And all the hounds of the storm followed behind, a yelping pack, coursing eastward and rejoicing as they went. Photograph, The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Jerusalem no one with life in his body could stay in on such a day, but for me there was little question of choice. In the gray winter dawn, the mules had gone forward, carrying all my worldly goods, two tents, a canteen, and a month's provision of such slender luxuries as the austerest traveler can ill spare. Two small mule trunks, filled mainly with photographic materials, a few books, and a goodly sheaf of maps. The mules and the three muleteers I had brought with me from Beirut and liked well enough to take on into the further journey. The men were all from the Lebanon. A father and son, Christians both, came from a village above Beirut, the father an old and toothless individual who mumbled as he rode astride the mule trunks. Blessings and pious ejaculations mixed with protestations of devotion to his most clement employer, but saw no need to make other contributions to the welfare of the party. Ibrahim was the name of this ancient, the son Habib, a young man of twenty-two or twenty-three, dark, upright, and broad-shouldered, with a profile that a Greek might have envied, and a bold glance under black brows. The third was a Druze, a big, shambling man, incurably lazy, a rogue in his modest way, though he could always disarm my just indignation in the matter of stolen sugar or missing piastres, with an appealing, lustrous eye that looked forth unblinking like the eye of a dog. 
He was greedy and rather stupid, defects that must be difficult to avoid on a diet of dry bread, rice, and rancid butter. But when I took him into the midst of his blood enemies, he slouched about his work and tramped after his mule and his donkey with the same air of passive detachment that he showed in the streets of Beirut. His name was Mohammed. The last member of the caravan was the cook. Mikal, a native of Jerusalem and a Christian whose religion did not sit heavy on his soul. He had traveled with Mr. Mark Sykes and received from him the following character. He doesn't know much about cooking unless he has learnt since he was with me, but he never seems to care tuppence whether he lives or whether he is killed. When I repeated these words to Mikal, he relapsed into fits of suppressed laughter, and I engaged him on the spot. It was an insufficient reason, and as good as many another. He served me well according to his lights, but he was a touchy, fiery little man, always ready to meet a possible offense halfway, with an imagination to the limits of which I never attained during three months' acquaintance, and unfortunately he had learned other things besides cooking during the years that had elapsed since he and Mr. Sykes had been shipwrecked together on Lake Van. It was typical of him that he never troubled to tell me the story of that adventure, though once when I alluded to it he nodded his head and remarked, We were as near death as a beggar to poverty, but your excellency knows a man can die but once. Whereas he bombarded my ears with tales of tourists who had declared they could not and would not travel in Syria unsustained by his culinary arts. The Eric bottle was his fatal drawback, and after trying all prophylactic methods, from blandishment to the hunting crop, I parted with him abruptly on the Cilician coast, not without regrets other than a natural longing for his tough ragouts and cold pancakes. Photographs, a street in Jerusalem, St. Stephen's Gate, Jerusalem. I had a great desire to ride alone down the desolate road to Jericho, as I had done before when my face was turned towards the desert, but Mikal was of the opinion that it would be inconsistent with my dignity, and I knew that even his chattering companionship could not rob that road of solitude. At nine we were in the saddle, riding soberly round the walls of Jerusalem, down into the valley of Gethsemane, past the Garden of Agony, and up on to the Mount of Olives. Here I paused to recapture the impression which no familiarity can blunt, of the walled city on the hill, grey in a grey and stony landscape under the heavy sky, but illumined by the hope and the unquenchable longing of generations of pilgrims. Human aspiration, the blind reaching out of the fettered spirit towards a goal where all desire shall be satisfied and the soul find peace. These things surround the city like a halo, half glorious, half pitiful, shining with tears and blurred by many a disillusion. The west wind turned my horse and set him galloping over the brow of the hill and down the road that winds through the wilderness of Judea. Photographs. A Mohammedan procession passing the Garden of Olives. Russian pilgrims. At the foot of the first descent there is a spring. Ein Esh Shems, the Arabs call it, the Fountain of the Sun, but the Christian pilgrims have named it the Apostles' Well. In the winter, you will seldom pass there without seeing some Russian peasants resting on their laborious way up from Jordan. Ten thousand of them pour yearly into the Holy Land, old men and women for the most part, who have pinched and saved all their life long 
to lay together the thirty pounds or so which will carry them to Jerusalem. From the furthest ends of the Russian Empire they come on foot to the Black Sea, where they take ship as deck passengers on board a dirty little Russian boat. I have traveled with three hundred of them from Smyrna to Jaffa, myself the only passenger lodged in a cabin. It was midwinter, stormy and cold for those who sleep on deck, even if they be clothed in sheepskin coats and wadded top boots. My shipmates had brought their own provisions with them for economy's sake. A hunch of bread, a few olives, a raw onion, of such was their daily meal. Morning and evening they gathered in prayer before an icon hanging on the cook's galley, and the sound of their litanies went to heaven mingled with the throb of the screw and the splash of the spray. The pilgrims reach Jerusalem before Christmas and stay till after Easter, that they may light their tapers at the sacred fire that breaks out from the sepulchre on the morning of the resurrection. They wander on foot through all the holy places, lodging in big hostels built for them by the Russian government. Many die from exposure and fatigue and the unaccustomed climate, but to die in Palestine is the best of favors that the divine hand can bestow, for their bones rest softly in the promised land and their souls fly straight to paradise. You will meet these most unsophisticated travelers on every high road, trudging patiently through the hot sun or through the winter rains, clothed always in the furs of their own country, and bearing in their hands a staff cut from the reed beds of Jordan. They add a sharp note of pathos to a landscape that touches so many of the themes of mournful poetry. I heard in Jerusalem a story which is a better illustration of their temper than pages of description. It was of a man who had been a housebreaker and had been caught in the act and sent to Siberia, where he did many years of penal servitude. But when his time was up, he came home to his old mother with a changed heart, and they two set out together for the Holy Land that he might make expiation for his sins. Now, at the season when the pilgrims are in Jerusalem, the riffraff of Syria congregates there to cheat their simplicity and pester them for alms, and one of these vagabonds came and begged of the Russian penitent at a time when he had nothing to give. The Syrian, enraged at his refusal, struck the other to the earth and injured him so severely that he was in hospital for three months. When he recovered, his consul came to him and said, We have got the man who nearly killed you. Before you leave, you must give evidence against him. But the pilgrim answered, No, let him go. I too am a criminal. Photograph. Pilgrims receiving baptism in Jordan. Beyond the fountain, the road was empty, and though I knew it well, I was struck again by the incredible desolation of it. No life, no flowers, the bare stalks of last year's thistles, the bare hills and the stony road. And yet the wilderness of Judea has been nursed to the fiery spirit of man. Out of it strode grim prophets, menacing with doom a world of which they had neither part nor understanding. The valleys are full of the caves that held them, nay, some are peopled to this day by a race of starved and gaunt ascetics, clinging to a tradition of piety that common sense has found it hard to discredit. Before noon we reached the Khan halfway to Jericho, the place where legend has it that the good Samaritan met the man fallen by the roadside, and I went in to lunch beyond the reach of the boisterous wind. Three Germans of the commercial traveler class were writing on picture postcards in the room of the inn and bargaining with the kanji for imitation Bedouin knives. 
I sat and listened to their vulgar, futile talk. It was the last I was to hear of European tongues for several weeks, but I found no cause to regret the civilization I was leaving. The road dips east of the Khan and crosses a dry watercourse which has been the scene of many tragedies. Under the banks, the Bedouin used to lie in wait to rob and murder the pilgrims as they passed. Fifteen years ago, the Jericho Road was as lawless a track as is the country now that lies beyond Jordan. Security has traveled a few miles eastward during the past decade. At length, we came to the top of the last hill and saw the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, backed by the misty steeps of Moab, the frontier of the desert. Jericho lay at our feet, an unromantic village of ramshackle hotels and huts, wherein live the only Arabs the tourist ever comes to know, a base-born stock half-bred with negro slaves. I left my horse with the muleteers whom we had caught up on the slope. Please God you prosper. Praise be to God. If your excellency is well, we are content. And ran down the hill into the village. But Jericho was not enough for that first splendid day of the road. I desired eagerly to leave the tourists behind, and the hotels and the picture postcards. Two hours more, and we should reach Jordan Bank, and at the head of the wooden bridge that leads from Occident to Orient, we might camp in a sheltered place under mud hillocks and among thickets of reed and tamarisk. A halt to buy corn for the horses and the mules, and we were off again across the narrow belt of cultivated land that lies round Jericho, and out onto the Gore, the Jordan Valley. Photograph, Monastery of Curintil above Jericho. The Jericho Road is bare enough, but the Valley of Jordan has an aspect of inhumanity that is almost evil. If the prophets of the Old Testament had fulminated their anathemas against it, as they did against Babylon or Tyre, no better proof of their prescience would exist. But they were silent, and the imagination must travel back to flaming visions of Gomorrah and of Sodom, dim legends of iniquity that haunted our own childhood as they haunted the childhood of the Semitic races. A heavy, stifling atmosphere weighed upon this lowest level of the Earth's surface. The wind was racing across the hilltops above us in the regions where men breathed the natural air, but the valley was stagnant and lifeless, like a deep sea bottom. We brushed through low thickets of prickly cedar trees, the spina Christi of which the branches are said to have been twisted into the crown of thorns. They are of two kinds, these cedar bushes. The Arabs call them zakum and dom. From the zakum, they extract a medicinal oil. The dom bears a small fruit like a crab apple that ripens to a reddish brown, not uninviting in appearance. It is a very dead sea fruit, pleasant to look upon and leaving on the lips a taste of sandy bitterness. The cedars dwindled and vanished, and before us lay a sheet of hard mud on which no green thing grows. It is of a yellow color, blotched with a venomous gray-white salt, almost unconsciously the eye appreciates its enmity to life. As we rode here, a swirl of heavy rain swooped down upon us from the upper world. The mule tears looked grave, and even Mikal's face began to lengthen, for in front of us were the slime pits of Genesis, and no horse or mule can pass over them except they be dry. The rain lasted a very few minutes, but it was enough. The hard mud of the plain had assumed the consistency of butter. The horse's feet were shod in it up to the fetlocks, and my dog Kurt whined as he dragged his paws out of the yellow glue. 
So we came to the slime pits, the strangest feature of all that uncanny land. A quarter of a mile to the west of Jordan, the belt is much narrower to the east of the stream. The smooth plain resolves itself suddenly into a series of steep mud banks intersected by narrow gullies. The banks are not high, thirty or forty feet at the most, but the crests of them are so sharp and the sides so precipitous that the traveler must find his way across and round them with the utmost care. The shower had made these slopes as slippery as glass. Even on foot, it was almost impossible to keep upright. My horse fell as I was leading him. Fortunately, it was on a little ridge between mound and mound, and by the most astonishing gymnastics, he managed to recover himself. I breathed a short thanksgiving when I saw my caravan emerge from the slime pits. We might, if the rain had lasted, have been imprisoned there for several hours, since if a horseman falls to the bottom of one of the sticky hollows, he must wait there till it dries. Photograph Crossing the Gore Along the river bank there was life. The ground was carpeted with young grass and yellow daisies. The rusty liveries of the tamarisk bushes showed some faint signs of spring. I cantered on to the great bridge with its trellised sides and roof of beams, the most inspiring piece of architecture in the world, since it is the gate of the desert. There was the open place as I remembered it, covered with short turf, sheltered by the high mud banks, and, heaven be praised, empty. We had had cause for anxiety on this road. The Turkish government was at that time sending all the troops that could be levied to quell the insurrection in Yemen. The regiments of southern Syria were marched down to the bridge, and so on to Amman, where they were entrained and sent along the Mecca railway to what was then the terminus, Man, near Petra. From Man, they had a horrible march across a sandy waste to the head of the Gulf of Aqaba. Many hundreds of men and many thousands of camels perished before they reached the gulf, for the wells upon that road are three only, so said the Arabs, and one lies about two miles off the track, undiscoverable to those who are not familiar with the country. Photograph The Bridge Over Jordan We pitched tents, picketed the horses, and lighted a huge bonfire of tamarisk and willow. The night was grey and still. There was rain on the hills, but none with us. A few inches represents the annual fall in the Valley of Jordan. We were not quite alone. The Turkish government levies a small toll on all who pass backwards and forwards across the bridge, and keeps an agent there for that purpose. He lives in a wattle hut by the gate of the bridge, and one or two ragged Arabs of the Gore share his solitude. Among these was a grey-haired negro who gathered wood for our fire, and on the strength of his services spent the night with us. He was a cheery soul, was Mabouk. He danced with pleasure round the campfire, untroubled by the consideration that he was one of the most preposterously misshapen of human beings. He told us tales of the soldiery, how they came down in rags, their boots dropping from their feet, though it was but the first day's march, half-starved too, poor wretches. A tabur, nine hundred men, had passed through that morning. Another was expected tomorrow. We had just missed them. Mashallah, said Mikal, your excellency is fortunate. First you escape from the mud hills and then from the radifs. Praise be to God, murmured Mabouk, and from that day my star was recognized as a lucky one. From Mabouk we heard the first gossip of the desert. His talk was forever of Ibn Er Rashid, the young chief of the Shamar, whose powerful uncle Muhammad had left him so uneasy a legacy of dominion 
in Central Arabia. For two years I had heard no news of Nejd, what of Ibn Saud, the ruler of Riyadh and Ibn Er Rashid's rival. How went the war between them? Mabuk had heard many rumors. Men did say that Ibn Er Rashid was in great straits. Perhaps the Radifs were bound for Nejd and not for Yemen. Who knew? And had we heard that a sheikh of the Sukur had been murdered by the Ajameh, and as soon as the tribe came back from the eastern pasturages? So the tale ran on through the familiar stages of blood feud and camel lifting, the gossip of the desert. I could have wept for joy at listening to it again. There was a babel of Arabic tongues round my campfire that evening, for Mikhail spoke the vulgar cockney of Jerusalem, a language bereft of dignity, and Habib, a dialect of the Lebanon at immense speed, and Muhammad had the Bayrati drawl with its slow, expressionless swing, while from the negro's lips fell something approaching to the virile and splendid speech of the Bedouin. The men themselves were struck by the variations of accent, and once they turned to me and asked which was right. I could only reply, God knows, for he is omniscient, and the answer received a laughing acceptance, though I confess I proffered it with some misgiving. Photograph, the monastery of Mar Saba, wilderness of Judea. The dawn broke windless and gray. An hour and a half from the moment I was awakened till the mules were ready to start was the appointed rule, but sometimes we were off ten minutes earlier, and sometimes, alas, later. I spent the time in conversing with the guardian of the bridge, a native of Jerusalem. To my sympathetic ears did he confide his sorrows, the mean tricks that the Ottoman government was accustomed to play on him, and the hideous burden of existence during the summer heats. And then the remuneration, a mere nothing. His gains were larger, however, than he thought fit to name, for I subsequently discovered that he had charged me three piastres instead of two for each of my seven animals. It is easy to be on excellent terms with Orientals, and if their friendship has a price, it is usually a small one. We crossed the Rubicon at three piastres ahead and took the northern road which leads to Salt. The middle road goes to Heshban, where lives the great sheikh of all the Arabs of the Balka, Sultan Ibn Ali Id Diab ul Aldwan, a proper rogue, and the southern to Madiba in Moab. The eastern side of the Gore is much more fertile than the western. Enough water flows from the beautiful hills of Ajlan to turn the plain into a garden, but the supply is not stored, and the Arabs of the Adwan tribes content themselves with the sowing of a little corn. The time of flowers was not yet. At the end of March, the eastern Gore is a carpet of varied and lovely bloom, which lasts but a month in the fierce heat of the valley. Indeed, a month sees the plants through bud and bloom and ripened seed. A ragged Arab showed us the path. He had gone down to join the Radifs, having been brought as a substitute at the price of fifty Napoleons from a well-to-do inhabitant of salt. When he reached the bridge, he found he was too late, his regiment having passed through two days before. He was sorry he would have liked to march forth to the war. Moreover, I imagine the fifty liras would have to be refunded. But his daughter would be glad, for she had wept to see him go. He stopped to extricate one of his leather slippers from the mud. Photograph. The Wall of Lamentation, Jerusalem. Next year, quoth he, catching me up again, please God I shall go to America. I stared in amazement at the half-naked figure, the shoes dropping from the bare feet, 
The torn cloak slipping from the shoulders, the desert headdress of kerchief and camel's hair rope. Can you speak any English? I asked. No, he replied calmly, but I shall have saved the price of the journey, and by God, here there is no advancement. I inquired what he would do when he reached the States. Buy and sell, he replied, and when I have saved two hundred liras, I shall return. Photograph, Jews of Bokhara The same story can be heard all over Syria. Hundreds go out every year, finding wherever they land some of their compatriots to give them a helping hand. They hawk the streets with cheap wares, sleep under bridges, live on fare that no freeborn citizen would look at, and when they have saved two hundred liras, more or less, they return rich men in the estimation of their village. East of Jordan, the exodus is not so great, yet once in the mountains of the Haran, I stopped to ask my way of a Druze, and he answered me in the purest Yankee. I drew rein while he told me his tale, and at the end of it I asked him if he were going back. He looked round at the stone hovels of the village, knee-deep in mud and melting snow. You bet, he replied, and as I turned away he threw a cheerful, so long, after me. When we had ridden two hours, we entered the hills by a winding valley which my friend called Wad el Hassaniyah, after the tribe of that name. It was full of anemones and white broom, ratam, the Arabs call it, cyclamen, starch hyacinths, and wild almond trees. For plants without a use, however lovely they may be, there is no name in Arabic. They are all hashish, grass whereas the smallest vegetable that can be of service is known and distinguished in their speech. The path, it was a mere bridle track, rose gradually. Just before we entered the mist that covered the top of the hill, we saw the dead sea below us to the south, lying under the gray sky like a great sheet of clouded glass. We reached salt at four o'clock in real mountain weather, a wet and driving mist. Moreover, the ground near the village was a swamp, owing to the rain that, passing over us the night before, had fallen here. I hesitated to camp unless I could find no drier lodging. The first thing was to seek out the house of Habib Afendi Faris, whom I had come to salt to see, though I did not know him. My claim upon him, for I relied entirely upon his help for the prosecution of my journey, was in this wise. He was married to the daughter of a native preacher in Haifa, a worthy old man and a close friend of mine. Urfa on the Euphrates was the stamplots of the family, but Abu Namrud had lived long at Salt, and he knew the desert. The greater part of the hours during which he was supposed to teach me grammar were spent in listening to the tales of the Arabs and of his son, Namrud, who worked with Habib Faris, and whose name was known to every Arab of the Balka. "'If ever you wish to enter there,' said Abu Namrud, "'go to Namrud.' and to Namrud, accordingly, I had come. A very short inquiry revealed the dwelling of Habib Faris. I was received warmly. Habib was out, Namrud away. Was my luck forsaking me? But would I not come in and rest? The house was small and the children many. While I debated whether the soaked ground outside would not prove a better bed, there appeared a magnificent old man in full Arab dress, who took my horse by the bridle, declared that he and no other should lodge me, and so led me away. I left my horse at the Khan, climbed a long and muddy stair, and entered a stone-paved courtyard. 
Yusef Effendi hurried forward and threw open the door of his guest chamber. The floor and the divan were covered with thick carpets, the windows glazed, though many of the panes were broken. A European chiffonier stood against the wall. This was more than good enough. In a moment I was established, drinking Yusef's coffee and eating my own cake. Photograph, Abyssinian Priests Yusef Effendi Sukar, upon him be peace, is a Christian and one of the richest inhabitants of salt. He is a laconic man, but as a host he has not his equal. He prepared me an excellent supper, and when I had eaten, the remains were set before Mikal. Having satisfied my physical needs, he could not or would not do anything to allay my mental anxieties as to the further course. Fortunately, at this moment, Habib Faris arrived, and his sister-in-law, Paulina, an old acquaintance, and several other worthies, all hastening to honor themselves at the prospect of an evening's talk. God forbid, the honor is mine. We settled down to coffee, the bitter black coffee of the Arabs, which is better than any nectar. The cup is handed with a deign to accept. You pass it back empty, murmuring, may you live. As you sip, someone ejaculates, a double health, and you reply, upon your heart. When the cups had gone round once or twice, and all necessary phrases of politeness had been exchanged, I entered upon the business of the evening. How was I to reach the Druze Mountains? The government would probably refuse me permission. At Amman, there was a military post on the entrance of the desert road. At Basra, they knew me. I had slipped through their fingers five years before, a trick that would be difficult to play a second time from the same place. Habib Faris considered, and finally we hammered out a plan between us. He would send me tomorrow to Tnaib, his corn land on the edge of the desert. There I should find Namrud, who would dispatch word to one of the big tribes, and with an escort from them I could ride up in safety to the hills. Yusef's two small sons sat listening open-eyed, and at the end of the talk one of them brought me a scrap of an advertisement with the map of America upon it. Thereat I showed them my maps, and told them how big the world was and how fine a place, till at ten the party broke up, and Yusef began spreading quilts for my bed. Then, and not till then, did I see my hostess. She was a woman of exceptional beauty, tall and pale, her face a full oval, her great eyes like stars. She wore Arab dress, a narrow dark blue robe that caught round her bare ankles as she walked, a dark blue cotton veil bound about her forehead with a red handkerchief and falling down her back almost to the ground. Her chin and neck were tattooed in delicate patterns with indigo, after the manner of the Bedouin women. She brought me water, which she poured over my hands, moving about the room silently, a dark and stately figure, and having finished her ministrations, she disappeared as silently as she had come, and I saw her no more. She came in and saluted me, said the poet, he who lay in durance at Mecca. Then she rose and took her leave, and when she departed, my soul went out after her. No one sees Yusef's wife. Christian though he be, he keeps her more strictly cloistered than any Muslim woman, and perhaps after all he is right. The rain beat against the windows, and I lay down on the quilts with Mikal's exclamation in my ears. Mashallah, your excellency is fortunate. End of chapter one.